Thanks for checking out this week's podcast, Week Off in the Books, now back at it. And boy, did we have a lot to talk about this week. The biggest topic of the week was probably the NBA's rest issue. Talked about it with Tom Haberstroh of ESPN. Also talked about it a little bit with Ryan Rucco of ESPN. Talked about some other wizard stuff with him. Chase Hughes from ZSM Mid-Atlantic was in studio with me. Talked about uh, a bunch of wizard stuff with him. That Some of it uh, here on the podcast. Also uh, talked about the rest issue amongst myself, so you get a little Hoffman solo segment. I know, real treat. Uh, also on the show, Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. Why? I dove in real quick. Man, that was a hit and run. Real things, real people said in real microphones, or air blown into a harmonica. That was fantastic. You just, you just got to keep listening to uh, to understand what's going on there. And since you're already listening, just just keep on going without further ado. Here's the show. Best thing I read today was a piece by Baxter Holmes on ESPN.com. I actually didn't get all the way through it. I only got about halfway through. But it's how peanut butter and jelly sandwiches have swept the NBA. It started with Kevin Garnett in about 2007 and, and just spread from there. And for a lot of guys, it's superstition. And so... As we welcome in ESPN play-by-play man Ryan Rucco, one of the most superstitious people I know. Ryan, I'd be remiss if I did not start the interview. First with a hello, because I have not talked to you in a while. How are you, my friend? Hey, what's up, Craig? How are you, man? I'm good. And then, and then because you are the man who, during uh, many New York Giants Super Bowl runs, refused to change shirts, would change shirts at halftime if things were not going the proper way, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any pre-broadcast rituals akin to the NBA's peanut butter and jelly sandwich obsession? You, you know what's funny? Um, I'll give you two answers to that one yes i do have i knew that was uh, coming i knew the yes was coming because i know you yes yes i i I definitely have my own rituals i um i have like uh certain like vocal warm-up exercises i have to do i have um i have a prayer i like to say before every broadcast i have to fist bump everybody uh that's associated with our broadcast who's at the table uh, after the national anthem's done. I got a whole bunch of stuff that I, that I have to get done before it's time to, you know, put on the show. But I also can actually speak to the, you know, peanut butter and jelly experience because I get to fly with the Nets because I also do, right. you know, Brooklyn Nets play-by-play, as you know, Craig, uh, for the Yes Network. And uh, that used to be the most coveted snack was the peanut butter and jellies. And they were always there for us ready um, in these baskets uh, before, uh, you know, when we get on the plane. And, uh, and we don't have them anymore. And earlier this year, there was one day where we had them. And you could not believe the reaction from players and, uh, you know, my colleagues alike. To having the peanut butter and jelly back on the plane you 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 would have thought you were a kid walking into wonka's home it was like <laughs> it was that ridiculous of a craze from people being excited that that option was back for them that is fantastic by the way the nets are here on friday but first for you uh you have hawks and wizards tomorrow night on espn uh which is the real reason we're having you on not to discuss superstitions and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches although your addition to that conversation was fantastic uh John Wall is having a sensational season, and I'm glad that I have someone like you who covers the league nationally and travels around to ask this question. He is fed up with his lack of respect or his perceived lack of respect 
from game officials, and he's got 14 technicals on the year. Uh, there seems many nights where he drives to the basket, winds up on the floor, and no whistle blows. Um, when when you talk about John Wall with other people around the league, what is the perception of him, and do you think he has a legitimate gripe that he is not does not get the respect that other superstars do from officials? You know, I, I have to... I have to say, I don't know, and I need to uh, – I, I think you can probably speak to whether or not he gets the proper respect more if you watch him every night, right? And you see it's a it's a common trend. I try and watch John Wall as much as I can because I love watching him play. I can tell you that, you know, the numbers when you talk about his drives per game compared to his free throw attempts per game are lower – than some of his fellow uh, big-time drivers in the NBA. So statistically, it would seem that he has a legitimate argument uh, and a legitimate case that he could get more calls. But I do think that's a little easier to uh, to assess when you're, you know, when you're watching him on an everyday basis. I think that it's smart of him to bring attention to it because I do think. You know, much of the way within a game, if an official has something pointed out to them by a head coach, and then all of a sudden, you know, that call is made because it's been put in their head. I, I think it's valuable for him to point out, like, hey, guys, I'm getting hit all the time. You know, Derek Rose did it earlier this year, and I don't think he's necessarily gotten the calls, but having watched him a lot this year, I don't think he necessarily knows how to sell the contact. I think John Wall does a better job of selling it, so there probably needs to be a few more whistles his way. Uh, the thing that I would be more confident saying is, though, I think he probably deserves a little more of a leash when it comes to some of those technicals, Craig, because, you know, I love this guy's fire. I love his competitive nature. I love how tough he is. I love that, you know, he sprains his foot, and there's no question he's going to be back out there the next day. Like, he he is he is a performer, and he, he's always out there to perform for the audience and the fans. And, you know, if he is going to be that fully engaged, of course, when something goes wrong, he's going to have a little reaction. I always would rather the officials give these guys a little bit of leeway to react to something going wrong when they're competing with such energy and intensity and focus. So from that standpoint, I definitely hear him having a case. When you look at, obviously, last night, the better team was the the Celtics versus the Wizards. But when you look at at a playoff scenario, those two teams matched up for a seven-game series. Uh, Are one of those teams or other the second-best team in the East behind the Cavs, in your opinion? I I mean, I think those are the two uh, best teams behind the Cavs in the Eastern Conference. You know, I'm curious what a totally healthy Toronto looks like because I did like the moves that they made at the deadline, and I think, you know, P.J. Tucker gave them some much-needed toughness, and obviously we want to see Serge Ibaka. And, you know, look, they're only one game behind Washington. That's significant for the Wizards because you want to avoid the Cavs until the conference finals if you can. I'd lean Boston because I think, you know, they have a little more depth to go with the continuity that Washington also has. Washington has the better collection of high-end playmakers, I think, because Boston doesn't have the obvious Beal. You know, the wall, Isaiah Thomas, let's say, cancels out, right? Boston doesn't necessarily have that. You know, although Avery Bradley did a wonderful job on Bradley Beal. He's such a difference uh, maker. It's amazing. Yes. He, 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 you know, and, and but I'll give the edge to Boston slightly because of a little more depth, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if Washington won that series. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if Toronto 
beat those teams either. Ryan Rucco of ESPN and the S Networks with us. And Ryan, instead of asking you, like, where are you on the NBA's rest uh, dilemma? Because I think that's yeah. kind of a, a played out question. Uh, I- I'll ask you this as someone who, like, I hate when we talk about the athletes that or the money that athletes make. To, typically, I hate talking about it because people try to compare it to their own lives. And that's silly because the money that they have, like the money in the pie is so large. And. But in this case, I think it's worth mentioning because the reason the money in the pie is so large is that, for instance, you and Doris Burke are going to be sitting courtside tomorrow, uh, and the NBA has paid or ESPN has paid the NBA a lot of money for the right for you guys to do that and, and broadcast the game nationally. As has Turner uh, with their games, and specifically now we've had a couple of weeks in a row with this ABC Saturday Night game being without stars. So, what what responsibility do you think? Uh, or how do you think the responsibility plays out for teams specifically to not rest guys on nationally televised games? And should that onus be on the owners to get involved, on the, the coaches? How, how do you see that kind of blame pie uh, shifting out if you think there is blame to be had there? Well, I think it's just about having consideration for your partners, right? Uh, whoever it is. You know, obviously there's a completely different uh, aspect of things, which is consideration for your patrons, your fans. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, you're asking a more pointed question than that. That's been covered. A, a lot of ground's been covered. I think when it comes to the television, I do think it matters somewhat because that's somebody who you're in business with for a very long time. That is the reason that the money is as large as it is within the sport. You know, it is the television money that has made the salary cap boom the way that it has over the last few years. And if, ESPN and Turner can't go to different advertisers and assure them that they're going to get the high-quality entertainment they think they're paying for. Eventually, that will trickle down to the players in years to come and to the organizations because there won't be as much money to go around. So I think it's in the best interest to consider that. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to run somebody out there who really, really needs a day off. But what it does mean is if it's a, eh, you know, if it's a scenario where like, yeah, we could probably pick a different day, you probably should pick a different day than picking the night of the week where you're trying to do something a la Monday Night Football with one of your primary partners. And I think that's what it's about. It's about just having a deeper level of consideration for everybody who's involved in making this league as successful as it is. Ryan Rucco, ESPN and the Yes Network. He'll be on the call tomorrow night on ESPN with Doris Burke, which is always a treat to, to listen to those guys call a game. Uh, and you can follow him on Twitter as well, at Ryan Rucco. Ryan, always good to catch up, my man. I hope we can run into each other over the next couple of days while you're in town because he said Brian will be on the game uh, Friday for Yes Network as well. I'm hoping to get down there tomorrow night, so at the very least, hopefully I'll see you then. Uh, always good to catch up, my man. We'll do it again soon, and uh, enjoy your stay in D.C. Appreciate it, man, and thank you for dealing with the phone issues. I no worries. It. No worries. It's Ryan Rucco of ESPN and the Yes Network sticking with us uh, through some phone issues, which I really appreciate. He didn't have. He could have just said, "Like, nah, man. Like, sorry, tough day." Uh, but that's not who Ryan is. He is. He is very superstitious, as we talked about at the top uh, of the last segment with him. So on this rest thing, real quick, and then I would love to, to hear your calls on it. Eight hundred six three six one zero six seven. It comes down to pretty much what Ryan just said. The reason that so much money is available to the NBA owners and the NBA players, why the salary cap boomed, and it is the most direct line you can possibly imagine, right? We talk about 
all kinds of different revenue streams, merchandise sales, ticket sales, local TV money, all of these different ways in which money funnels its way into the NBA, which is a giant pie. And then based on how the CBA is written, it is split up. A certain portion goes to the owners. A certain portion goes to the players. And that number is the salary cap. Uh, obviously, it's then divided amongst the 30 teams. And each team has a certain amount they can spend, blah, 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 blah. You get it, right? There's a set pie. The reason that pie is now super duper enormous is because there was a new national television deal. That is why the thing exploded. That is why Mike Conley, because of when his contract was up, is the highest paid player in NBA history. It is why John Wall is currently on one of the biggest bargain contracts in the NBA because he signed it before the cal- salary cap boom. It's why Steph Curry's contract is a joke right now. He signed a four-year, $44 million deal because he was having ankle issues and was like, yeah, I'll take that. Well, then he became a two-time MVP and the salary cap exploded. And now he's making $5 million less this year than Timofey Mozgov is, who is now resting so the Lakers can tank. The whole reason all of these guys got all of this money is because of the national TV contracts. And, by the way, before you go, okay, well, then the players should suck it up. Because I think that's probably what a lot of fans are going to say. And, again, you can get your thoughts in at 800-636-1067. It's so easy and so simple-minded and so stupid, in my opinion, for the reaction to that be, well, then the players should suck it up. Nope. Nope. Because you want to know what's a bigger slice of money than the players get? The slice that the owners get. Remember, I believe the number now is 57 to 43. 57% to the owners, 43% to the players. Because before the lockout in 2011, the or during the lockout in 2011, the owners took the players to the woodshed because the union leadership on the players' side was a disaster. So if the pie is bigger for the owners and they're making money hand over fist, why can't they be the ones to get involved? Why can't they tell their coaches, hey, stop doing that. Stop making it so these guys are so tired. I'm sorry it makes your job harder, but this is the one scenario where the money actually matters. And I'm sorry if that means that fans in attendance on a certain day might not get to see a player because the game the next day is on national TV. But it comes down very simply to the most money coming into your sport, the biggest thing making your pie bigger is national TV. And most teams, at most, will have one national TV game per week. And you can't be bothered to fix your rest schedule so those dudes can play. So the LeBron James, the Kyrie Irving, the Steph Curry, the Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, John Wall, whoever can play on that one night. Rest him a day, a day before, rest him a day after. It doesn't seem that hard. But if these are the people making you your money, you better be a good business partner or it is going to cost you in the future. Adam Silver is furious over this, and he has every right to be, in my opinion. 
Tom Avers show writes about sports science and the NBA and, and all those things, places where those intersect. Uh, for ESPN, Tom joins me now. And Tom, we'll just go right into uh, this, this rest issue. Uh, hope you're doing well, my man. But when you look at uh, some of the instances where the NBA has uh, gotten upset, it's obviously the national TV games. Do you think there is a way that they can keep the schedule the way it is and fix the problem of the place where most of the money is coming in from the national TV partners are actually getting the best product? Well, I don't think so. I think this this current situation is untenable, and you're asking LeBron James to sacrifice his body for one regular season game. Um, that doesn't make much sense anymore. I think all the science, Craig, is on one side of the conversation, and uh, Doc Rivers, I know you're in D.C., so this might be a little too political for you, but <laughs> Doc Rivers said, you know, this is like global warming, where there are scientists all on one side of the table. I'm going to listen to those scientists. And the scientists are telling coaches in the NBA that the reason why all these star players are getting chewed up by the schedule is because they're playing games when their body hasn't recovered. They play these back-to-backs. 19 times a year where they're flying overnight from one city, sometimes as long as three hour flights and they're playing the next day uh, when their body is still fried and they try to play. And, and it's a bad product. I mean, the field goal percentages are down turnovers are up on those second day of back to backs. And not only that, uh, the injury risk is three and a half times higher on road back to backs than ones played at home when you're sleeping in your own bed and you're with your family Um, and you're not probably going out, right? So all these numbers are piling up to trainers, to to the sports scientists, which go relay to the coaches. So if you're Tyron Lue and it says, you know, if you're trying to win a championship, playing this game raises the risk of LeBron James getting hurt and you don't win a title and your job is in jeopardy, you're going to take that game off. Like, I don't care who you are, that March 15th game does not matter to you at the end of the day. It's, it's how do we make sure that LeBron James is healthy for the playoff run, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. So at, at the end of the day, the NBA schedule 82 games in 170 days, even in 177 um, days, is just insane. And every doctor that I've talked to, every so- sports scientist says that's, that's not smart for the body and something needs to change. Assuming that the NBA is not going to all of a sudden next year go, 66 is the number that's thrown around a lot. Maybe you can quickly explain why that is the number. Um, but six, if they go to a 66-game schedule, for instance. Um, I don't feel like that's something that's going to happen. Boom. All right, next year we're going to play 66. But is there a way that, that teams can kind of rework when they rest players? Because that would be my argument is if I'm Adam Silver looking at this right now without having the opportunity to to change the number of games in the schedule uh, as of right now, because no one's willing to give up that money, presuming that would involve giving up money, um, that, hey, quit just quit resting them when you're on ABC on Saturday. Pick the Wednesday game or that's on your local t- TV. And I'm sorry, is that something that you think is fair for the league to ask of coaches to do? See, the, the issue there, Craig, I and mean, I think it's a great idea on paper, but in, in reality, um, the doctors are going to say, no, like, what if, what if the game, like, like, let's, for example, let's say this, the Golden State Warriors against the San Antonio Spurs last weekend, Saturday game was an eight game, eight city in 13 days. Think about that. 
eight flights, 13 days, less than two weeks. They were in eight different cities playing basketball. They flew from Atlanta across the country to play a home game the next day in Golden State and then flew to Minnesota the next day for a game. So the, think about that cross-country travel with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Klay Thompson trying to win a championship in three months. And you're asking them to do that, that ridiculous trip of 11,000 miles in less than two weeks and try to not get injured. And so Steve Kerr, on a Minnesota to San Antonio back-to-back, he said, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Um, and the issue, it's easy to say, all right, well, then rest the guy on Wednesday and then play on that Sunday or that Saturday on the second night of back-to-back. That still doesn't solve the problem of they are, they're scheduled to play a back-to-back uh, after travel. That doesn't solve that problem. And what we had the other night with the Cleveland Cavaliers is – Kevin Love, the doctor said that he needed two days of rest in between games when he's starting back in this rotation after his knee injury. That doesn't help. You know, playing that Saturday game does not give him those two days. And so in these cases, we can't reverse engineer it and say, why don't you rest this day instead of that day when the doctors are saying you need X number of rest days between you can play. It's just not... It sounds good in theory, but it's not in reality um, feasible because of the prescriptions. Like when your doctor tells you, like, you know, you can't walk on your ankle for two weeks, you're like, well, I, why don't I walk on, like, my ankle for the first week and then take off the next two weeks? That doesn't make any sense, right? Right. To a point, I mean, I do think that it, it's very rare that we see, and maybe it's happening more often now, but, like, on the first night of a back-to-back instead of resting the second. But if it's going to cost a guy extra games where he's going to now have to sit two instead of one, obviously that's a different story. But I do think there are situations where if you have a Friday-Saturday back-to-back and the Saturday night game is the ABC game, sorry for your Friday fans, but there's no rule that says the game of the back-to-back you have to sit is the first one or the second Correct. one. Correct, and that's what, right, and, and that's what LeBron James did. He rested the first game. Um and that's the funny thing about this is 66% of the back-to-backs that are taken off are the second night rather than the first night. And so what happens is, you know, going into a back-to-back, what happens is coaches and trainers will say, all right, well, let's see how tired you are after the first game. Maybe it goes into overtime. Maybe it's a blowout and you play only 20 minutes, and we'll see what happens and, and, and go from there and decide whether you're going to play in that second game. It's very rare that people will do what LeBron just did, which is we need to preserve you ahead of time before the back-to-back on that first game, and then you'll play in the second game. So what this all amounts to, this seems kind of um, we're stuck in the weeds here a little bit. What this amounts to is do we want LeBron James to worry about regular season games? Like ultimately we've created this culture in football, in the NFL, in baseball, in basketball, where rings are everything. We can't have it both ways. We can't say LeBron James needs to win as many titles as possible to solidify his legacy in uh, next to Michael Jordan and then get mad at him for taking off a regular season game. We can't. We can't. Because this guy has played 40 finals games, more than Michael Jordan, more than Charles Barkley, more than Dominique Wilkins combined. Um, And we're saying that he should be focused on these regular season games. It's lunacy. I mean, he's played 199 playoff games in his entire career, all on national television, this guy can do what he wants, frankly. He's, he's on borrowed money at this point. I mean, he's playing with house money. He should be able to do what he wants. He's, he's earned that equity with the league. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. And I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm on the 
hey, you shouldn't rest side. It's just I'm also on the, hey, that's a lot of money that the, these guys, uh, that the, the national partners, including your employer, is obviously giving uh, the league and to, not, to give them an inferior product seems like it's, it's a bad system. And it's just, it's a matter of how to fix it, not, not like, hey, just suck it up. That, that's not the solution. That uh, is for sure. Craig, like you're absolutely right. Is there has to be a fix here? This is untenable. Uh, there's obviously an issue here. I don't see the argument that 82 is this sacred number. Why do we play 82 games in the NBA? That's a wonderful and question no, to which you probably have a much better answer than me. There's no real reason. It's just like back in the day, like they had 78 games and they moved to 80, then 81, then 82 because they needed to fill revenue in the gate like the seats. But now there's a TV contract where there's 160 games on national TV that are creating all the value for revenue. So why are we playing 1,230 games if like there's 180 of them that are creating all the value for the league? So I think in general, we should cut the number of games in the season that requires uh, no back-to-backs, whatever that number is, whether it's 60, whether it's 55, whether it's 45, and have appointment viewing where every week you know on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday your NBA team is on. It would create so much interest in the league if every game mattered and you knew what day it is. There in D.C., you don't know when the Wizards are coming on. You just don't. There's no rhythm to the NBA season, and I don't see why we can't copy the NFL model where every day of the week, or college football, where every week you know what day your NBA team is on and they're rested and they're ready to play. No, I'm, I'm with you there. Scarcity. And this is something that drives me nuts about the NFL, the way they've created, like, for instance, Thursday Night Football. And it's a garbage product that's no good for anybody. And it actually hurts their scarcity, which I think hurts the value of their product. But that's a different conversation for a different time. Tom Haberstroh from ESPN uh, is with me, Craig Hoffman, here on Overtime on the Fan. All right, let's talk a little hoops on the floor, uh, not guys sitting on the side of it. Uh, when you look at where the Wizards have gone, the, you know, they were the hottest team in basketball for a couple of months there, uh, at least in the Eastern Conference. Uh, when you look at where they have gone wrong the past two weeks, do you do you see any kind of pattern, any kind of thing? You go, man, that's, that's where they have struggled and, and now have lost four or five. I think I think people get carried away. We just did this with the Golden State Warriors where they lose two or three games in a row, and people are like, what is it? Like, What's wrong with the Warriors? I mean, I did like a video about Steph Curry missing six, or he made six of his 37 wide-open three-pointers, and what's wrong with, with Steph Curry? It's random. Like, the NBA <laughs> season is long, you know? Like, like if you look at the – do you have the game log looked up on the, on the computer there? Like, uh, I can pull it up real quick. Eight, if you have, if you go back to the last eleven games, I bet their record is something like seven and four, or like something like that. And we do this arbitrary thing where, like, oh, there's something wrong with. The, I don't think anything's wrong with the Wizards. I think they just had a little bit of a slide, maybe due to the schedule. Um, but this is a team that they just need to get to the playoffs healthy. And this is the conversation we have with every NBA team, which is why I think the NBA season is way too long, is just get to the playoffs already. We know how good the Warriors are, and at this point, every team is playing prevent defense, trying not to get hurt. I mean, that's what, that's, that is the reality of the NBA season. Is that At some point in the schedule, it's just every team, every coach, every GM is like, let's just get to the playoffs. And I feel like that's what the Wizards are doing, which is like – why are we still going like hard every single night here in the regular season when our legacy in this city is if we perform in the postseason?
you're, you're as usual, especially when numbers are involved, dead on. They're they're seven and four in their last eleven. That was that was well played, well played by you, uh, Tom Aberstrow. With this, like, what are we doing here? Thinking that they're like in a rut. When well, they they have lost rock. four or five, and 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 you know part of it is the randomness of, for instance, Boyan Bogdanovich didn't miss for a month, and now he's missed some shots, and that's that's the league sometimes. Exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of randomness at play, and as long as John Wall, Brad Beal, Markeith Morris, Marcin Gortat, Yamahimi, Bogdanovich, all those guys are healthy, Otto Porter, I don't think there's anything to worry about the Wizards. When you look at the the last, where they have struggled, um, and and I guess I'm not asking this as much as like, oh my God, what's wrong with them, but as a projection of what could go wrong in the playoffs, uh, Martian Gortat has such a massive impact on on this team, and his effectiveness um, is a huge driver of their success because he has such an impact on the guards of this team because he's their primary pick-and-roll partner. How do you, uh, when you look at the game, measure the effectiveness of, of a screener and, and how he's able to create offense, um, whether it is just to get his guard open or to be a secondary playmaker on the catch? How, how are some of the ways you try to assess that? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. And one of the things that Marcin Gortat, <clears throat> excuse me, um, used to be able to do with regularity but doesn't do as much as is being a vertical spacer. By that, I mean a guy who can jump up and catch those lobs around the basket and convert in ways that like DeAndre Jordan, Tyson Chandler used to, Hassan Whiteside, just throw the ball up and it creates so much gravity. A lot of player defenders have to go towards Marcin Gortat to prevent him from dunking all over them. That as much isn't the case. I mean, he's, he's a great offensive rebounder. He's a great screen setter, but I think that's one of the areas that as he gets older, um, as he gets deeper into his 30s, he's not going to get any lighter out there. And especially, you know, playing these long seasons for him, uh, I think Jan Mahimi is going to be huge. I think he's going to have to be that pick-and-roll guy to give him some relief. And him being healthy is, is absolutely huge for the Wizards. As you know, like, that bench was awful for the first half of the year. Um, and they started, you know, making strides with that end on that end. But it's... Marcin Gortat is going to be huge, but I'm, I worry that, you know, they're going to have to play a lot of small ball with Otto Porter at the four um, because I don't know if Marcin Gortat is going to have the legs to do what, say, Tyson Chandler did for the 2011 Mavs. Yeah, he's he's been such a good offensive player, but Mahimi has been a, a massive impact player defensively for them since he's gotten right. Um, last night obviously did not go well for the Wizards in Boston. Avery Bradley is, I, I think, outside of Kawhi Leonard, I think he's the best perimeter defender in basketball, and the impact he had on Bradley Beal uh, was, was rather evident. If you're the Cavaliers, which one of those teams do you not want to see in the Eastern Conference Finals? Because I think for a while everyone kind of agreed, hey, yeah, it's the Wizards, and they match up really well with the Celtics, but with Bradley back in the bit, the mix and what happened last night, I think that might change some opinions. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Cavs, uh, I think they're going to get to the finals anyway, as long as the big three are, are healthy for them, but um, I just think I I think the Wizards have experience. Um, I think the the Celtics are a little green, I mean, no pun intended. Uh, I just don't know <laughs> if they're, they're ready. They don't have that second score quite yet. To, to take the load off Isaiah Thomas, where as the Wizards, I think they can just come at you from all sorts of different angles. Um, and I, I worry that in the playoffs for the Celtics, they become one-dimensional offense with Isaiah Thomas. And I think ultimately the Cavs are going to have their hands, hands more full with the Wizards on both ends of the floor, with their athleticism, with their experience. You know, they it's not like they haven't been in the playoffs together or had stretches under Randy Whitman where they surprise and get deep into the playoffs. I just think, 
in terms of which team is more likely to get to the East Finals, whether it's Boston or, or Washington, I'm betting on Scotty Brooks and that that experience that they have on that roster. Uh, because with Boston, I just I know I like Al Horford, I like Avery, Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder, but I just think that offense is too one dimensional. All right, last thing for Tom Haberstroh of ESPN and ESPN the magazine, which I mentioned specifically because apparently you wrote a story about uh, NBA players and Tinder. <laughs> it's not online yeah, it's yet, so I haven't, I haven't seen a link, uh, but I, I did get the latest edition of the mag at home. I guess I have to go home and read this. Yeah, yeah, and actually that, that, that version in the mag is like a tease. Like it's ah. about a thousand words long, and then the digital one is going to be the blowout feature, um, and that's going to hit tomorrow. So, so there's this thing in the NBA that's happening where home court advantage isn't what it used to be, and the home team is losing more than ever. And a lot of GMs were kind of thrown around theories about why that might be the case. And one GM said, I think it's the tinderization of the NBA. And by that, I mean, they aren't going to the club until three in the morning, like maybe Charles Barkley or Michael Jordan in that era might have to get girls. Okay. I'm just going to say pretty bluntly, the, uh, the nightlife is a lot more efficient now with Tinder, with Instagram, and they don't have to go to the club until three in the morning. So they're getting more sleep. They're not drinking as much. And this is the theory posed by the GM and then corroborated by lots of NBA people on the player side and the personnel side that the life on the road is just different. It's more efficient and going out and partying all night just isn't a regular thing anymore. So go check out the magazine on newsstands already. And then the digital piece tomorrow um, to learn more about why the NBA nightlife maybe contributing to home losses more than usual. That's a, that's a good tease right there. That was well done, sir. I uh, look forward to reading the story uh, as always, as with everything you write, always appreciate your time. And we'll do this again as we head towards the playoffs, man. And always good to catch up. You got it, Craig. What responsibility do NBA teams, the league and players, coaches have to their fans when it comes to resting superstars and to the integrity of the game itself. That's the question I want to tackle with you at 800-636-1067. A couple of different angles to attack this. There is the science angle that I would like to get to in a moment. There's also the angle we talked about a little bit earlier, touched on Greg Popovich. Should you rest stars at home or on the road? I think that's an interesting fan question. It's a legitimate question for you at 800-636-1067. But when it comes to the actual product on the floor, it is indisputable that it is worse because of the way the schedule sets up. Not only is it worse when good players are not playing, it is worse when they are playing tired. There are still some people, though, that do not believe that, believe that it is a fallacy, believe that uh, this is some, I don't know, something made up by people uh, around the league to explain Something that doesn't need to explain. I don't know. This sounds like a stupid rambling explanation because that's what it is. Because it's it's fake is what it is. It's fake, fake news. But Charles Barkley and other NBA players of days past are certainly believe that that is true. Charles Barkley on the Rich Eisen show this week. All of a sudden, I, I, I don't know where this thing come from, where they got the rest and you got all these idiots on television talking about, we have stats that show if you play back-to-back. I'm like, yo, man, Bill Russell played in Converse. He had a long career. Tim Duncan, the greatest power forward ever, played 20 years, basically. And he went to college for four years. Uh, you look at uh, Michael, went to college for uh, three years. He never got hurt. Man, these guys, just go, they just care about money nowadays. But what I think needs to happen... 
I think the fans need to boycott games and boycott television to send these guys a message. Because people always understand money. And I'm really sick of all these punk-ass reporters. And that's all they are. They kiss up to these young generation. Tell it, well, these guys need rest. Well, first of all, we've always needed rest. But when you're making millions of dollars to dribble a basketball, and listen, like I say, I'm actually, I'm so old, I flew coach and played back-to-back games. <laughs> these guys are flying private, getting a great night's sleep, getting a great meal, and they're making $20, 30000000 million, and they can't play a couple basketball games? This is ridiculous, man. And let's just say, I hope at some point the fans all get together and say, you know what we're going to do? We're, all gonna, we're not going to go to any games for a week, and we're not going to watch any games uh, on television for a week. I think if the fans hit back, it'll be great. That, what was that, a minute 30? From Charles Barkley, who, as I've said before, is wildly entertaining, but is as opposite, uh, as oppositely as informed as he is entertaining. The best of Charles Barkley is who he play for, not his actual analysis. That is filled with an incredible amount of half-truths and hypocrisy. The hypocrisy I don't so much care about, but the... You're getting paid a million dollars to dribble the basketball line is hysterical from a player who couldn't be bothered to be in shape at during different points in his career. And I'm not talking about the fact that Charles played big and was still very good. Despite his size, he was a Hall of Fame caliber player. I'm talking about the points that he was beyond that and was like fat and not caring and got his way out of certain situations. Uh, and then at the end in Houston, over a money dispute in part that he himself got himself into because of bad financial advice, uh, you pick your advisors, uh, didn't bother to play or couldn't be bothered to, to be in shape to play. So there's the hypocrisy angle. But again, I don't care too much about that other than to point it out and acknowledge it uh, for giggles sake. The half truths part is where is what bothers me because Barkley better than I or you listening or anybody else that hasn't played in the league understands the physical beating that it takes. And to say that, Hey, your body is now to like put some dollar value on the health of a human being is, is to me, asinine so when we have this research that says these players are tired they could use more rest and we're talking about their health and well-being on top of the actual product on the floor being as good as it can be like what what's your point chuck we always knew we they needed rest so your your response is suck it up no the response of an intelligent human being is get more rest and as for a punk-ass reporter who's on TV. Uh, I had one of those guys. I, To me, he's the best one, Tom Haberstroh, on my show Tuesday night on Overtime. And he talked about these stupid numbers that are made up or are actually real data that has been studied by smart people like Tom. All these star players are getting chewed up by the schedule because they're playing games when their body hasn't recovered. They play these back-to-backs 19 times a year where they're flying overnight from one city, sometimes as long as three-hour flights, and they're playing the next day uh, when their body is still fried and they try to play. And, and it's a bad product. I mean, the field goal percentages are down, turnovers are up on those second day of back-to-backs. And not only that, uh, the injury risk is three and a half times higher on road back-to-backs than ones played at home when you're sleeping in your own bed and you're with your family. 
um, and you're not probably going out, right? So all these numbers are piling up to trainers, to science, the sports scientists, which go relay to the coaches. So if you're a Tyron Lue and it says, you know, if you're trying to win a championship, playing this game raises the risk of LeBron James getting hurt and you don't win a title and your job is in jeopardy. You're going to take that game off. Like, I don't care who you are. That March 15th game does not matter to you at the end of the day. It's it's how do we make sure that LeBron James is healthy for the playoff run, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. So at the end of the day, the NBA schedule, 82 games in 170 days, even in 177 um, days, is just insane. And every doctor that I've talked to, every sports scientist says that's, that's not smart for the body and something needs to change. Tom Haberstroh from ESPN with me earlier this week on The Fan. Here would be my question for Barkley. Who's winning with this right now? You have two options. Rest or play? If you play, the product is worse. Shooting percentages down, turnovers up. It is poo-poo basketball. And there are some nights where you watch games. Luckily, like we got lucky with with Wizards-Cavs last night to a point. Um on the Wizards' side of it, because the Wizards were on the right end of it. The Cavaliers played in Charlotte the night before and said it was the most physical game they've played all year. And they didn't look up to the challenge last night. And John Wall ran it down their throats because John Wall played less than 25 minutes against the Nets. You shouldn't have schedule dictating wins and losses in your league. You shouldn't have schedule dictating the quality of play in your league. It's one of the things that drives me nuts about Thursday night football in the NFL. And especially on a situation like the Redskins had this year where they had the Sunday night Thursday game, which was ridiculous. It it shouldn't be this hard to get. What other league do we talk about schedule losses? In Major League Baseball, a, a, a league with twice the games, because everyone's playing pretty much every night, we don't talk about it. It's a less physically demanding game. Not saying that it's not demanding, uh, especially when you get in the middle of summer and it's 100 degrees and even standing outside for that long is a lot. But it's more of a mental grind than it is a physical grind. The NBA is an unmatched physical grind. Hockey is is super physical, obviously, as well. I would say it's probably second um, because of the amount of games and the contact. But still, it's a lot of free skating, and it's a very outside of the obvious collisions I'm talking about from a ground contact standpoint, it is the least physically demanding uh, because there's no jumping or anything like that, as opposed to in basketball, I would say, or is less physically demanding because in basketball, that ground impact on your back, your knees, and especially when you're six foot seven or six foot nine or even six foot four, like that's a lot. And the body's going to have to recover. The, The physical demand of playing the sport is, is incredible. And it's the only one that has these schedules, scheduled losses, essentially. So what good is it to the fans to just say, hey, suck it up? No, no, no. Fix your, fix your league. Fix your sport. Fix your schedule. The Wizards started winning in late November. They haven't really stopped since. And have climbed to a place in the standings that is beneficial to their future. Unfortunately, the teams around them might not be cooperating. Craig Hoffman with you here on Sunday morning on the Fan Chase Hughes from CSN Mid-Atlantic is in studio with me. And Chase, 
Um, ESPN's 538 has the chances, or I, I should phrase it this way, the odds-on favorite to be the one seed in the Eastern Conference as the Boston Celtics, not the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers uh, all already um, only have a half-game lead after their loss to the Wizards last night. And as Washington sits in three with the hottest team in the league, eight and two over their last 10, Milwaukee in six, like, is this, I would, I, it's a simple question, but I guess it kind of is a good place for us to dive in. Is this the worst case scenario for the Wizards? Because I don't know what else could possibly be worse than having to deal with Milwaukee in the first round and then potentially Cleveland in the second, as opposed to, let's say, Indiana and Boston. I think obviously seeing Cleveland in the second round <clears throat> would not be ideal. If, if you're going to try to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, you want to see the best team as late as possible because right. uh, then who knows what happens. Once you get to that point, who knows what happens. It would be very tough for them to lose in the second round to the defending champions. It would almost be like uh, the Capitals, you know, last year, right, lost to the Penguins in the second round. Yep. You know, you don't want to play the best team in your conference before you have to play the best team in your conference. As far as the first round goes, I don't think they should really be that scared of anyone because a lot of these teams have depth issues. And the Wizards not only have depth, but they also have star power at the top. Between John Wall and Bradley Beal, they're going to have the two best players in the series, you know, if they meet up with the Hawks uh, or the Heat. Uh, you know, the Pacers have Paul George and the, the Bucks have Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, but both teams are pretty thin beyond those players. Miles Turner for the Pacers is good. Uh, the Bucks have some guys, but their second best player is hurt. He's out with an ACL injury. So the Wizards should feel good about all those matchups. I think the Heat and Bucks are pretty dangerous. The Heat, since mid-January, have one of the best records in the NBA. They've been incredible. Yeah, before the Wizards won last night, they had uh, the same record as the Wizards, tied with the Warriors and Spurs for the most wins in the NBA. So they, That's that, ridiculous. That's more than a third of the season that they've been that good, and they you know, also have some star power. The Bucks this month have been exceptional and have one of the best players in the NBA, in Giannis Antetokounmpo, but their depth issues, I think, would uh, allow the Wizards to win out pretty easily in that series overall. Yeah, I, the easy, I don't know. Um, I, I think Giannis is really, really good, and they've got so much length um, that they make they make life difficult for you. Um, defensively, they're, you know, their numbers aren't staggering. Like, they're giving up 104 a game. Um, but they, like, they just, they know how to play. And Jason Kidd is a really good coach. I think he, it, that's been proven over time with what he did with the Nets and then, and then what he's done in Milwaukee. Um, he's a very solid coach who understands playoff basketball, obviously, with his history as a player. Miami's so hot. I don't – just don't – and Spo, you want to talk about the best coaches. Like, to me, there's a definitive best three coaches in basketball. And it's Greg Popovich, it's Rick Carlisle in Dallas, and it's Eric Spolster in Miami. And I don't think people realize – like, everyone acknowledges how great Pop is. Everyone acknowledges how great Carlisle is. Uh, but I think because most of Spolster's success came with LeBron and Wade and Bosh – People overlook how good he was, A, with them, and B, has been good without them. But what he's done down there this year is absolutely remarkable. Um, and just in, in a playoff series where coaching matters, like uh, not that I think Scott Brooks is bad. I think Scott Brooks is probably the story of the year in Washington outside of you know Wall's ability to recover, um, which some kind of research needs to be done into that. Like What, what workout program was he on? Um, <laughs> I, it's something I don't want to mess with. Indiana doesn't scare me at all. 
Yeah. I think I think Washington's guards are so much better than Indiana's guards that that series would be overwhelming. And I think the same is true for Atlanta. You know, we, we saw them play the Wizards tough on Wednesday, but like, do you trust Dennis Schroeder in a playoff series? If I could pick any of those teams, I think I'd want to see Indiana uh, most likely, and then I'd probably put Atlanta second. I would agree. All four of those teams, at least uh, the Hawks, Bucks, and Pacers, the Wizards have matched up very well against. They're three and one against all of them. The Heat, they're zero and two. Uh, the Pacers, the reason why you want to see them is because though they're pretty good at home, 25 and 11 this year, they're 11 and 25 on the road. Paul George said it recently. They're a playoff team at home. On the road, they're a lottery team. The 76ers have one less win on the road than the Pacers. The Orlando Magic, who have the second worst record in the East, have been better on the road than the Pacers. They are a disaster away from Indiana. So, uh, I don't. I don't think you, they scare you very much. Even though Paul George could win a one a, one or two games by himself, he could make the series interesting. But they just don't have the depth or experience to really get it done. So uh, I, I think I agree. The Hawks are probably the most favorable matchup because they've been so terrible. They've lost six straight. If that continues, they're the team you want to see because uh, they're just a complete train wreck at this point. So they're in the five seed right now, um, but they're tied with Milwaukee. So it's very possible with the way these two teams are trending that Atlanta winds up falling behind Milwaukee. Milwaukee rises up, uh, and, and the, 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 there's a distinct line after the top four. So you got Cleveland at 47 and 25, Boston at 47 and 26, Washington 45 and 28, Toronto 44 and 29. So 44 wins. Then Atlanta's in the five seed right now, tied with Milwaukee, as I just said. They've both got 37. So huge it's, drop. Off. It's a huge drop off. The, the top four of all clinch playoff seeds, they've basically clinched home court, um, barring one of them going like, oh, and whatever down the stretch. And even they would have off the other teams uh, <laughs> going, you know, whatever and oh, uh, to catch them. So those are, you're going to match up with one of those teams. But you look at the difference between Atlanta as the four seed and Detroit as the 10. And even Charlotte is the 11, a team that uh, Washington plays uh, very soon, I think this week. Um, and you're talking the difference of five games there. Atlanta's got 37. Charlotte's got 32. Um, Detroit and Chicago are the first two teams out of the playoffs at 9 and 10. They've got 34. So those teams could be in the mix, too. And it's it's going to be a really interesting last week. Um, the Wizards' schedule's pretty tough. Um, doesn't start super tough because they got the Lakers, who are the worst team in basketball, not they name the Nets. Uh, and then they have the Clippers on the second night of that back-to-back in L.A. Then they're at Utah, which is a team they match up not very well against and absolutely destroyed them at home a couple weeks ago. Um, now you got to play them at Utah. Then you got at Golden State before coming home for that Charlotte game on Tuesday the 4th, so that's 10 days from now. You're at the Knicks, and then you've got Miami, Detroit, Miami to finish out the season. So I guess the the good news, so to speak, is that you're going to have a say in partially who you play. And you wonder if there's some funny business uh, towards the end of that, if you need a team uh, to win or lose or whatever to try to avoid playing in the playoffs. Or if, you know, it looks like that's going to be the matchup. Do you do you sit guys down the stretch uh, to try to do some stuff with, with Miami uh, in two of the last three games? Yeah, there's a it's, a... it's a pretty tough schedule. The Wizards, you know, this five-game road trip, I think... You know, Scott Brooks said it the other day. When you looked at the schedule in August before the season began, you knew this was going to be the toughest stretch of their entire schedule. They took care of business last night against Cleveland, but you look at the road trip as a whole, a 3-2 and two road trip would be a massive success because of the teams you have to play. So the Wizards right now, 
there's a lot that can go down in the standings, as you alluded to earlier. Not only do they have the Raptors breathing down their neck just one game back, but they still would like to catch the Celtics, who are two games ahead, even though the Celtics are uh, so hot right now. So, um, we're, you know, there's nine games left in the Wizards schedule, but still a lot to shake out. And I think we're going to find out a lot about the Wizards on this road trip because it is so difficult. And right now they're off to a pretty good start. Yep. By the way, if you want to go to L.A. Uh, for for the games this week, you can get into the Clippers game for four bucks <laughs> on Wednesday. The Lakers game somehow is 16. That's apparently that's what the tickets are on. on I got ESPN.com schedule thing. But what's ticket site do they use? Four bucks. Vividseats.com. Wow. Even, Four, even when the Clippers are good and the Lakers are terrible, I guess that's still the case. Against a good team. Like, you can go watch Chris Paul versus John Wall sit in the upper level, row four of section 309 or row seven of section 310 for four bucks. <laughs> Chase, let's go to Los Angeles. Yeah, that sounds nice. I think the, the ticket, uh, the seat uh, on the plane is going to cost slightly more than that. But hey, details, details. I'm talking about John Wall now. And we kind of started talking about Wall earlier in the show. And then uh, even before that, which is was you and I were talking before we came on air. You said something about him that I thought was interesting. I asked, I asked you kind of like, what what's he like behind the scenes? I've I've obviously been to a number of Wizards games. I've done some some post game stuff. Um, I typically get out of the locker room fairly early. Wall is Wall is a, a slow dresser. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll talk to Bradley Beal, who's typically first out, maybe one other guy, and then I'll I'll get out of there. Um, I talked to Wall a little bit in in the press conference setting before uh, preseason, et cetera. But you're in that locker room a lot more than I am, and you you've had a chance to interact with him a lot more than I have. I have, and and. I'd love for you to share with the audience kind of what you told me about him. Uh, and, and then I think we have a really good example of it from halftime last night, the interview he did on CSM with Chris Miller. Well, I think he is, for a superstar, very approachable and very honest. And it kind of reminds me, you know, I covered the, the Nationals for six years before I started covering the Wizards. This is my first year actually covering the Wizards. And it kind of reminds me of Bryce Harper to an extent because – they're both superstars, but at the same time, they're very down to earth because I've been around other superstars. These guys are definitely different dudes, like definitely a lot more approachable than the average guy. Um, sometimes they'll give you, you know, kind of a cliche answer if they just don't feel like being honest at that point. But for the most part, if you ask John Wall a question, he'll give you an honest answer, no matter who's asking it, no matter what's it about, you know. Uh, if you ask him, you know, earlier this season, there's been several instances, you know, uh, Chris Miller saw, noticed that uh, Denzel Valentine out of a timeout of the Bulls uh, back in, in January, uh, noticed that John Wall went up to him and said something to him. So John Wall immediately told us what he said. He said he went up to him and said, look, man, that dance you did, we didn't like it. You just woke up a monster. And then he took over the game and they won. Like, <laughs> he's very, very honest like that. I've seen him asked all sorts of questions. I mean, the Wizards, they let a lot of people in uh, with credentials. I mean, lots of different types of bloggers, some guys that are in high school and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of questions from left field that he gets, but you can't phase the guy because he doesn't care and he's clearly experienced enough and smart enough to know that he's not going to get himself in trouble. And even if he did say something that people didn't like, like, you know, that rest comment he made uh, just a few weeks ago to CSN that the league's getting softer. There's things that he says that he knows people are probably going to blow up on, but he doesn't care. And the, he's, I think, comfortable enough in his own skin to be his real self with the media, and you don't get that as often as you would think. 
I think even this example from last night, you talk about that comfort level and just, I, I think the, this sounds silly, but like he sees us in the media as, as just like other humans. And I think a lot of times players what a see concept, themselves, right? Right. But like, I think it goes both ways in that a lot of players see themselves as some kind of superhuman and uh, see the media as some kind of subhuman. And it's just like, no, I'm a, I'm a person talking to another person. Um, and for instance, the thoughtfulness in this halftime interview with Chris Miller last night is way more than you typically get at halftime uh, of an NBA game. John, how are you guys able to get a 17-point lead in this building? Oh, man, we just came out with a lot of intensity. They're a tough team, man. We know they're going to keep fighting. We know we had them up big before. They cut it down to 10. Uh, LeBron really hasn't been in attack mode like he wants to be. Uh, he's trying to get his teammates going early on and then score later on. Uh, we're just trying to take something away from him. Big picture. Didn't play a lot of minutes last night. Able to get the bench going. How much did that actually help you going into this game tonight? Um, it was great. You know what I mean? I had a lot of energy coming into this game. You know, we, beat, we had these guys beat last time. They made a great shot. Uh, we feel like we won one in the series. And uh, we might see these guys in the playoffs. So we're just trying to leave a statement. We know it's a lot of basketball left. We got to come out the same intensity, bit aggressive. And uh, they're probably going to start trapping, but we just got to trust our teammates. He's talking strategy. He's talking <laughs> minutes from last night. Like, and you making a most, statement. You want to know how most players, and this is at halftime of the game, most players answer that with, yeah, it was key, feel good, ready to go for the second half. All right. And, and in many ways, Chris asked his questions knowing that, knowing that the chances I get, like, a thoughtful answer here, like, I'm just going to get him to the locker room because this is not the time for thoughtfulness. I'm not trying to write a feature here. I'm not trying to do a TV feature. I'm just trying to get John off the court without PR yelling at me and try to get him to halftime so he can go be with his teammates. Hey, John, how'd you build a 17-point lead? Played well. Uh, you know, got a lot, long way to go, though. We're not too excited. Uh, wh- how much did the rest help last night? It helped a lot. We feel good. We feel fresh. But we got a, se- a second half to go. Thanks, John. Bye. That's typically how that interview goes. Instead, you got that. Right. And that was the second answer, too. I, I've, right. done, I've done sideline reporting, college basketball sideline reporting. Usually, it's that second answer where the coach or the player, they've done this before. They know it's two questions. They know all they have to do is give you like three words for that second answer, and they're headed to the locker room. You could hear he's out of breath. He's ready to yeah. go to the locker room. He's in the middle of one of the biggest games of the season. Uh, you know, had to play the night before, had the migraine headache, almost missed the game, and he's here taking the time to give a thoughtful answer. So, yeah, that that was, you know, maybe it's easier for you and I to see because we probably pay attention to that stuff a little bit more because we've either done it or, you know, it's just part of our business. But that was pretty rare, what you just heard. It never happens. I actually thought, um, I was listening to, to J.J. Reddick's podcast, which sadly is still on hiatus because it was really, really good. Um, hopefully it'll come back uh, in the in the off season. But uh, he had Blake Griffin on, and he said, made a really good point about halftime and postgame interviews. You want to know why most of them suck? Because you're out there doing f- extreme physical exertion, and that takes brain cells and blood flow and things. Like, it's science why these interviews suck. You don't have the brain right. power, and you're sucking wind, and, like, you can't you can't think or speak. And John Wall is just so thoughtful and, and is, is so, I would say, over himself that Chris Miller asked a question, even if it was meant to kind of set him up as a softball to, to get the hell out of there and get back to the locker room and rest. And, and John Wall actually was nice enough to think about the answer. And I think it's not, it's not about, like, praising John Wall for giving Chris Miller this great answer and, like, oh, good job, John, you're so nice. But it's just kind of, I think, large, more largely speaks to who he is, that he is thoughtful and he is not self-obsessed. 
He is very real down to earth. What you see is what you get. And I think that probably also helps him as a player because I he's got to be that way with his teammates too, where they feel like they know him and can trust him and, and that implicitly it makes him a lot easier to, to follow as he is a leader of this team now. No doubt. And, of course, Chris Miller deserves some credit as well. He's got a great rep, uh, rapport with John Wall. Right. Unbelievable at his job. Now that I've worked around Chris Miller, I've done yeah, sideline I, I reporting. Will t- typically, He's I amazing. would make fun of you for sucking up to one of your colleagues, yeah. but Chris Miller is a friend of this show and a, and a very yeah. good very good man who's very good at his job, so I will allow the sucking up yeah. to Chris Miller. Bravo, Chris yeah, Miller. Yeah, he, he is exceptional. Yay, Chris Miller. But I will say that I think you make a good point there that uh, – that John Wall being real like that is is probably respected around the locker room. I think uh, players don't respond as favorably to guys who are fake, and I think the word fake is something you would never use about John Wall. There's some other guys in that locker room that uh, you could say the same about. You know, Markeith Morris uh, is low-key, maybe the best quote in town. Uh, he's no Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker is the best quote in town, uh, hands down. I, I don't care who you find me. Dusty Baker is better. But Markeith Morris is great because he doesn't care at all to the point where he'll drop cuss words left and right on live television. That guy does not care at all. And if you look, if you look closely, he's had some of the best quotes of the entire season. Uh, but John Wall, similar man. If if he doesn't like a call or doesn't like a, a officiating crew, he'll tell him he, he'll take the fine. He's got the money. He doesn't care. I may regret this decision, but I'm going to change my mind on what I'm going to talk about because conversation is happening on the internet and uh, it's been happening and it's not going away and it shouldn't go away and that question is why Colin Ka- or the conversation is about why Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job I'm Craig Hoffman here on 1067 the fan Sunday mornings uh, and I say I'm going to regret this only because I feel like I'm not giving myself enough time to fully potentially get into this and callers uh, could be fun on this, so but we only have a segment because we're doing real things, real people said in real microphones next. So if you want to call uh, without hearing my opinion, go ahead, 800-636-1067, because if you wait to hear it and then we run out of time in the segment, you're not getting on the show. So, for instance, Burgundy Blog tweets, Kaepernick Convo perplexes me. What, people don't, what don't people get? You can be average or you can have baggage, but not both. Everyone knows this. Which brings up two separate, but separate but equals a weird phrasing here, considering topically what we're talking about, but separate but but equally important points. What is Colin Kaepernick as a quarterback, and what kind of baggage does he have? Because if you look at how he performed last year, um, he was actually fairly good. And he obviously has some really good seasons in his past. Now, I don't love Colin Kaepernick as a player, And he's had some really, really bad games, too. But he was fighting through a lot of injuries um, over the past couple of years. And he did lead a team to a Super Bowl. I shouldn't say lead a team. He was a part of a team and was the quarterback on a team that went to a Super Bowl. That team had an exceptional head coach in Jim Harbaugh, a phenomenal defense, and were centered around the running game. But of the... Can he lead your team to the Super Bowl or can he be your quarterback and go to the Super Bowl question? The answer is yes, because he's done it. Can he do it again? I don't know. Is it ideal to have him as your quarterback? Nope. But is he one of the best 32 in the league? Yeah. He's got an insane arm. Uh, He has played in a couple of different offenses. He is phenomenal as a running threat and matters as a running threat. 
in a way that most quarterbacks, even mobile ones, don't. Um, and so if this is a guy who was over 60% from the pocket last year, didn't turn the ball over very much, and, like, he doesn't have a job. And, and teams are afraid to touch him because of what he did last year. Now, he already said, I'm not kneeling anymore. Um, I'm just going to try to make a team. But there's no way you can argue that this is about anything but that. And not necessarily even a revolt against what he did and the stand that he took, but the fear that he could have some attention brought to him. And what I would ask you is this. In the aftermath of Colin Kaepernick becoming a, an extremely notable public figure in a way that expressed beyond sports, what in the hell did he say that would scare you if you were a PR department? He handled himself in a, an exemplary manner. He handled himself in a way that showed he knew exactly what he was doing, knew exactly what he was talking about, had done his homework, and was prepared for any questions, and that would not, yes, sure, if you disagree with him politically, people are going to say things, but people disagree with people, whether it's politically or their favorite color or favorite flavor of ice cream. People disagree with things athletes say all the time. Who cares? He's not affecting your bottom line in any way that is notable. Sure, are there going to be some people that feel strongly enough that what he did was in some way offensive. And look, that's terrain I've covered on this show. And I think those people don't get it at all. But are you going to have those people that's, that affect your bottom line? Sure. But are three fans going the other way that actually have influential money power going to screw you over? Nope. And I would argue it's not even baggage at all. He conducted a peaceful protest in a very public manner, and he got a lot of attention. You know what? That's the point of the protest, is to get noticed. He clearly and concisely made his point. He also clearly and expansively made his point. It just depended on how much you as a consumer wanted to pay attention. Because he was successful in making the point that he wanted to make, he is now being punished by a league that is terrified of quote-unquote distractions. But what they define as a distraction is beyond mind-numbing because it's just flat-out dumb. It is fear of a thing that does not exist. And it, it it's... I don't get it. I don't get this. This league is so afraid of its own shadow. The NBA would never do something like this. The NBA you could argue, made a team sign the first openly gay player in their sport. Doesn't, like, the NFL, like, oh, Michael Sam disappeared. Guy was the SEC player of the year. You know what? He proved he wasn't good enough. Okay. Other, other players would have gotten more chances. At the end of the day, yeah, and you can't even for this one use it's a performance league because Kaepernick was good last year. Rome's in Bethesda. Rome, you're on the fan. Quickly, go. First and foremost, I totally agree with you that that half of the league have kind of 
blackballed him for this for reasons that you know are insignificant but I think that he's just being patient. He's going to be on an NFL roster next year. I don't think he's being completely. But you haven't, Rome. You haven't. We haven't heard of any teams being interested. He hasn't gone on visits. He hasn't like gotten unfair contract offers. He hasn't gotten any. That that's what I don't understand. Gary's in Maryland. Gary, go. You're on the fan. Yeah. What I'm saying is, uh, I just believe that many Americans come to a football game. They're very patriotic. The stadium is filled with a hundred thousand people. Ninety-five percent of them taxpaying Americans, I think he needs to just find another venue than a football game where people want to relax. And Gary, your point's stupid. Mark, you're in Largo. Mark, you're on the fan. Your point is, is very, yeah, I, I, Craig, I totally agree with what you're saying, but here's the problem. We're talking about the good old boy league of the NFL. Yes. And, and unfortunate, unfortunately, they are who they are. And you know how the good old boys think. I know it. You know it. They're not going to shake that. I mean, you and I, we can understand that. We can get past that. But you're talking about guys who are in the, either the war generation or the baby boom generation that have this thing. Oh no, we can't. We can't tolerate that. And it's totally unfair. Totally Mark, unfair. Mark, thank you for your call and your passion. It's it's about like. And I, I think the fact that it touches the political third rail scares them, scares them even more. But they are so afraid of anybody with any kind of baggage. It is the same reason Terrell Owens is not in the Hall of Fame. Do you realize how asinine that is? Terrell Owens is one of the top five receivers ever in every statistical category. He played on the, in the Super Bowl on a broken leg. But he shook pom-poms and pulled a Sharpie out of his sock. And so people are up in arms and they won't let him into the Hall of Fame. It is sports being self-righteous at its absolute worst. And as for, look, I was a little dismissive of, who the, was it Gary, the second call there? I said his point is stupid and I hung up on him. Here's why your point is stupid. Your point is stupid because he was successful in what he was trying to do. And you're telling him to do it differently. What, what are you trying to say? Hey, be less effective in this really important thing that affects millions of people by picking a less common venue. No, that's not how this works. Amanda, you're in Winchester. Thanks for calling. You're on the fan. Hey, how you doing? Great. So I actually disagree with you on this one. I think that the the idea that they're afraid of nothing is kind of silly. I mean, the, there were, there was a huge backlash against what he did. And no matter what your politics are, whether you agree with them or not, it's inarguable that a large portion of the NFL fan base skews politically conservative and that he offended those people and that you saw that in the bottom line. And the NFL is a business. But Amanda, did we see that in the bottom line? How did it affect their business? I think the ratings. The ratings were affected because we had the most most, uh, polarizing political race. The minute the election was was over, it was bad. But I, I, I believe that part of the, I knew personally knew people who, refused to watch the NFL games because of what happened. And I didn't refuse to watch them, but it was a real thing that happened. And I think that the league itself isn't who's punishing him here. It's the individual owners are choosing as a business decision that they don't want to alienate a portion of their fan base. And I think you're right. He was very effective with his argument and he's free to do it. it was the free country. And he made a, he did a protest that was peaceful and it was effective, but you know, part of the free country is that other people can choose to react to it however sure. they want. Absolutely. Absolutely. All the owners have their rights. Um, but at the end of the day, like, 
Colin Kaepernick's jersey also became one of the best sellers in the league. So for everyone who cares enough to not watch, there are those that became so engaged that they bought a jersey of a guy who wasn't even playing. Colin Kaepernick's the hero to a lot of kids and a lot of people, just like he's the villain to a lot of kids and a lot of people. But I would say there's probably the villain to a lot less kids. Like, put on your critical thinking hat here and also think, like, if he goes out and plays for Team X, are people really not going to go? Are there some? Sure. There's also some that would, and they'd probably even out. And the financial impact on the league is going to be minimal. At the end of the day, what matters is winning games. If Colin Kaepernick signs with the team and they start winning, you know what's going to happen? Those people can come back. That's how it works. If he can play, sign him. And this, based off of what he did last year, especially as he got healthy, this shouldn't be a question of whether or not he can play. Craig Hoffman with you on The Fan. We wrap up with real things real people said in real microphones, including a guy that's going to the Redskins in a lot of mock drafts right now, playing the harmonica and doing it well. Talk about a left turn from where we just were. Next on The Fan. We close the show like we do most weeks here on The Fan with real things real people said in real microphones. Uh, there's a, uh, that's not a really a rant. It's, it's a diatribe from Gino Oriema. Uh, that got a lot of attention over the last week. It's like a year old. But Gino Oriema and PJ, who you just heard behind the glass, he's a, he's a high school basketball coach. I know you loved this. So let's just get right into it because I don't have much time. And then we'll get to the NFL prospect who the Redskins might be interested in playing the harmonica. Uh, and he'll play us out. So uh, Gino Oriema talking about essentially kids these days. Just let's go. And they're always thinking about themselves. Me, 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 me. I didn't score, so why should I be happy? I'm not getting enough minutes. Why should I be happy? That's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. And kids check the scoreboard sometimes because they're going to get yelled at by their parents if they don't score enough points. Don't get me started. So when I look at my team, they know this. When I watch game film, I'm checking what's going on on the bench. And if somebody's asleep over there, somebody doesn't care, somebody's not engaged in the game, they will never get in the game, ever. And they know that. They know I'm not kidding. I love this from Gino um, in that it goes with a quote that I actually just pulled up. And I'm lo- thankful that someone, uh, Lee Fitting from College Game Day, actually just tweeted this into my timeline, too. Um, it goes with kind of hand in hand with this quote from Frank Martin. He says, you know what makes me, my, me sick to my stomach? You, when I hear grown people say that kids have changed, kids haven't changed. Kids don't know anything about anything. And as someone who is still coming out of being a kid at the age of 27, I should be more of an adult than I am. Uh, yes. No, you don't know what you don't know as a kid. We're all dumb. Uh, continuing his, his quote, kids don't know anything about anything. We've changed as adults. We demand less of kids. We expect less of kids. We make their lives easier instead of preparing them for what life is truly about. We're the ones that have changed. To blame kids is a cop-out. And what Gino is essentially saying is, like, these kids are kids, and I'm going to hold them responsible by taking away things that they want. Gino continues. We put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game, ever. I don't care how good you are. If somebody says, well, you just benched Stewie for, you know, 35 minutes in the Memphis game a couple years ago. Yeah, I did. Oh, that was to motivate her for the South Carolina game the following Monday. No, it wasn't. Stewie was acting like a 12-year-old. So I put her on the bench and said, sit there. And the other coaches might say, well, you can do that because you got three other, you know, All-Americans. I get that. I understand that. But I'd rather lose than watch kids play the way some kids play. I'd rather lose. It's not his fault that he's got more awesome players. Um, and from talking to people that have been around Gino Oriema in that program, like this, Gino's so successful, he gives zero bleeps. Like this is all true. This isn't him saying stuff. This isn't him trying to be a salesman. 
His sales, his sales pitch is, we've won 109 straight games. Gino continues. Recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been because every kid watches TV, and what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. They haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot, and they're going to act like they're really good players. See it at every AAU tournament. You see it at every high school game. So recruiting kids that are, like, really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. It's really hard. That's cool stuff from Gino. And I do think i got to give some of the NBA guys credit that are at the top of the league right now. It's so obvious that a guy like LeBron cares and a guy like Russell Westbrook cares and John Wall cares. And so there are good role models out there. But um, when you're 19 years old, like, can you get a kid to care? And obviously, Gino has done that. And I know everyone says, like, oh, he's got the best talent, winning 100 straight games, whatever. The fact that he's gotten 18 to 22-year-old kids to do the same thing at that level, 100 and what will be 10 after today, straight times. It's remarkable. And anyone who want, doesn't think so can fight me. Uh, all right. As for the 17th overall pick in the upcoming NFL draft, a lot of experts seem to think that Christian McCaffrey might be in play for the Redskins. Now, we'll save thoughts on McCaffrey as a prospect because uh, I we don't have time. We have a minute. You, you know what that does leave us time for? Hearing Christian McCaffrey's, we're, we're doing real things real people said into real microphones. Uh, this wasn't into a microphone. This was just done into a harmonica. We have time for Christian McCaffrey playing the harmonica. Accompanied by piano. One of the great songs of all time, by the way. famous riff on a harmonica than this? Blues Travelers has a couple, but, but not as not, popular, not, not, not as like big mass as Billy appeal Joel. popular as, as Billy Joel's Piano Man. And if I told you, like, this is a Billy Joel studio session, you'd believe it. It's so good. I wish I had like Christian McCaffrey to either do what his day job is going to be or or play the harmonica. Unfortunately, I have neither. So instead, I talk about sports into a microphone. I appreciate you listening to me do so. You can listen more coming up Thursday evening. TC's pregame, 6.30, overtime at 7. Quick edition of overtime that night. Then next Sunday, back on at 9 a.m. So you can check out there. Also, don't forget, train with the best podcast. Should be out tomorrow afternoon. Joel Sanders from Exos is going to join Chris Gores, Lorenzo Alexander, and me. Should be a really interesting show. We're talking about general population training. Joel is kind of the czar of that at Exos. Does a really terrific job. So curious to pick his brain. It's a topic I obviously know well from my training job as well. So train with the best pod. Subscribe to that on iTunes. Also subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. Say nice things. Because, well... You probably, if you're hearing this, think highly of it because you've made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you. See you next week. Bye.